Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi award winning Niall Boylan Show. Ireland's classic hits. Around this time every night, we always talk to somebody who's kind of an interesting guest. And as I said before, I've always said to my producer, Jane, I don't really want to know anything about them until they come on and you hand me this piece of paper. Because I always find it's the best way to talk to somebody when I know little about them. Because then I'm as interested as you are. There's nothing worse than hearing an interview when the person who's interviewing them knows all the answers before they even answer it. So I'm going to be talking to a man with an incredible story. And his name is Sheldon Thomas. And he's the founder and chief executive of Gangsline in the UK. Now, Gangsline is an organization which provides help and support to young men and women involved in gang culture. And growing up, Sheldon experienced the brutality of racist police officers and the National Front living in uh, Kentington, or Kensington in South London. Sheldon, along with everyone he knew growing up in Kensington, had spent most of their early years, uh, from about 1974 until 1985, being verbally and physically abused by police officers. The police would call him names, like Gollywog, Sambo, Coon, Jungle Bunny. And Sheldon was assaulted on many occasions by the police just for being black. Sheldon went on to form a gang in order to protect himself and his friends. And Sheldon has an unprecedented insight into gangs. And he joins me on the line. Sheldon, good afternoon to you. Or good evening, sorry. Good evening to you. I always forget what time of the day yeah, it is. Good evening. Yeah, Sheldon, what an interesting life. And by the way, can I just say, I, I, I know that, you know, in the 10 years as a gang leader, a lot of your associates were shot dead during vi- the violent period back in London in the 1980s. And I, yeah. I vaguely remember that when I was younger. I remember in Britain, there was so much tension at one stage. Uh, you know, with the, there was a lot of riots. I remember, I, if I'm right in thinking, the Brixton riots... Um, which That's maybe was, right. yeah was that was that in the eighties or the seventies the Brixton riots? No, that was in that was in eighty one. Yeah, yeah. So that was in and around that time. There was a huge amount of tension uh, between the black and the white community uh, in, in London, in particular. So, what was it like? You, I mean, it mentions here that you know you ex- experience this kind of racist brutality that we see more so in the United States now. Uh, hopefully, not as much in Britain as you would have seen it then. But what was it like being constantly picked on all the time? Well, you know, it was it was made worse because most of our parents had come over in the 40s and 50s. And they kind of, I would say, I mean, some people would not like the way I'm going to say it, but I would say they were um, intimidated, scared, and didn't want to upset um, the establishment. So they came over and put up with racism. They came up and put up with brutality. Now, obviously, you've heard the saying, no cat, I mean, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. Mm-hmm. You, you've heard that saying. Of course, yeah. And that, and that was what it was like for my parents. So when we grew up now in the 70s, and we were, you know, we, we didn't know nothing about racism because that was the thing. Our parents didn't tell us that they were going through these stuff. They didn't say anything. So when we were going to school and suddenly a policeman would um, run down his window and start calling you names, you're, you're confused because you're like, why, why is he? Because you didn't even, you, we didn't even hear about those names. So going to school became like going through a minefield. That's what it was like for young black kids 
Um, I, I can't up. imagine, well, you couldn't imagine it now, obviously, but I can't imagine a police officer lowering down a window and using those names, those terms, you know, that we hear, you know, that well, hopefully we don't hear nowadays. But you can't imagine that, that being some sort of, well, when I say acceptable, it seemed acceptable. Well, the police, um, I mean, as, as you know, there was many things that happened where um, situations came to light, like the Brixton riots in 81. And a policeman, a, a top policeman at that time, was filmed saying when he was asked directly, do you think it's acceptable that police officers use racist terminologies like the words I described, gollywogs, coons, sambo? And he said, yes, on TV. So... But but, it, but you remember, it. I don't know whether you remember this or not, but there was TV shows at the time, like Love Thy Neighbor. I don't know whether you remember that yeah. or not. Where yeah, there was yeah, a yeah. black family and a white family, which were Afro-Caribbean, living next door yeah. to a white family. And those words like Sambo, Jungle Bunny, yeah. they were used on television in comedy yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And it was acceptable. And this is why uh, many of us today who are in our um, late 50s, 60s, are um, asking the Met Police for a um, an apology because they um, have put many of us, many of us would never form gang. We would never have formed a gang to protect ourselves because, as you may know, when you form a gang, it doesn't just stay for the same purpose it was formed for. So if you look at the gangs in America... Most of the gangs were formed in the same way we were formed. They were fighting racist police officers. But in America, it was also the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. Whereas in England, it was racist police officers and the National Front. But what happened was, because of our vulnerable state of mind, the anger that we were continuing, because you've got to understand, we're just trying to get to school. We're being beaten up trying to get to school. And then on the way home from school, we're getting chased by the National Front um, you know, on the way home. So remember, going to school was a nightmare. Going home was a nightmare. And if they caught you, and remember, we're not talking young men. These guys were in their 20s. We're only 11. That's we're incredible. 12. You, 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 you can't imagine grown adults chasing an 11-year-old just because of the colour of his skin. It's bonkers when you think yeah. about it. So when, yeah, when you join is. the gang, I suppose it's power in numbers. That's the way you think of things, isn't it? When you, when you form a gang. How old were you when, when you when you started this gang? I was twelve. Wow. Yeah, and because by then I had been um, on my one incident that sparked it was when I was on the way to school. A police officer um, came out of his car and not came out. No, he was he he was looking out of his window, and then he said, "Oi, blackie!" And then I turned and he threw an egg at me. Um, and the egg obviously dirtied my school uniform. And I think for me, uh, that and the incident where my brother was beaten up by 15 skinheads, where they dislocated his nose, broke it, smashed up his face, you know, and while he was being beaten up by 15 skinheads, um, two police officers were standing there laughing. And those incidents were the turning point in my life, I'd had enough. Because my mum and dad were weak, they were scared, they didn't want to say anything, um, I felt we had no choice. So when we joined the gang, we obviously, after a while, self-destruct because we got involved in drug dealing. Mm. Because obviously, during that time, 
Many black people couldn't get jobs because of the color of our skin. Um, every job we went for, we couldn't get it. Um, and in the end, we were only good enough to do cleaning jobs. There, so there was a I very think, interesting fact that I, I remember many years ago, I think it was Tony Blair, had said that if you were black living in Britain, you were five times more likely to end up in jail. And, and they give out to him for saying it. That, oh, you shouldn't say things like that. That's not nice to say. And But what people didn't really ask is why. Why was that the case? Why was it yeah, that black I, people were more likely to go to jail? Not just because of the ju- ju- justice system uh, were more likely to put a black person in jail, but why were black people ending up in trouble? Why were they not getting good jobs? And I remember talking to, I was talking to my producer the other day about something different, and we were saying they did an experiment in Chicago many years ago where there was a job, and they sent 50 applications in for the jobs with the same attributes, the same credentials, but they gave 25 of them traditional black names, like Tyrone, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, and none of them received an interview, but all the white names did. And it just goes to show you that's exactly what was happening in Britain in time. So really, you didn't stand a chance. No, we, we, we didn't stand a chance. And it was easy for, for us to get caught up in the drugs because we couldn't get work. And many of us resented England. We hated England, whereas our parents loved England. We hated it. The whole concept of England um, living in this country was, well, if we're going to live here, we might as well, you know, become criminals against the state. Because in our head, in our mind, because remember, we're only young. We're not big men. We're not. We're only like 13, 14. When I formed the gang at 12, we only spent about a year fighting police officers we firebombed the National Front headquarters. We did things that, you know, we just, you know, we had to do. And that, I think, was our turning point because we thought if we can um, be so angry and, and we can defend ourselves against this racist state, then perhaps we can make money. And so that's why, that's how the Jamaican gangs got involved with us because it was easy to turn our heads. But what were the from... people like, if I can ask you, Sheldon? Okay, the police and, I suppose, the authorities, in your view at the time, were racist. But the people, your neighbours, your your mom and dad's friends who may have been white at the time, what were, what were they like? They weren't certainly all racist, were they? I mean, did you feel you were growing up in a racist country or did you feel it was just the establishment that was racist? No, at that time, we felt we was growing up in a racist country. Many of us, I think in 19... When my brother was nearly killed, we used the terminology that we were living in an apartheid state. That was the word we used at the time because everywhere we went, we were faced with racism by ordinary people as well. Now... Things have changed because now I would say England is systematically racist, but I wouldn't say the people are systematically racist. I would say the establishment today, whereas back in my days, I would say the country was racist. Mm -hmm. In relation to what sort of trouble you got into, so as you mentioned already, you firebombed the National Front's headquarters. You, you know, I don't know what you did to the local establishment or police. But, you know, during that time, some of the members of your gang were badly hurt. Some were shot. You were shot yourself several times. And a bullet just yeah, missed mean, your face, I believe. Yeah, I mean, we obviously, because of the gang war and we're, our, our allegiance to Jamaica, because we're, we're, most of us are of Caribbean descent. And so because we were of Caribbean descent, in Jamaica at the time, the gang sprang up due to 
um, social inequality and the CIA um, bringing in guns into Jamaica to fight the establishment. So it meant that Jamaican gangs began to form um, and used, they were used by the Mexican cartels and at the early stages of Pablo Escobar's life. So that's how the Jamaican gangs got involved in drugs. So when they were being chased out of America and in the Caribbean by the DEA, they came to England because most of us were their relatives. So it's easy for them to run from America or the Caribbean mm-hmm. to safe haven in Britain. And it was those small sections of the Jamaican community who are gang members from the Shower Posse, Spranglers, Dunkirk, Mosses, all these gangs that were in America, in New York, in Miami, in those areas in the early 80s, came to Britain. And it was through them that we got involved in the drugs trade. And it was so we had to we were starting selling drugs. But obviously, when you're selling drugs in those days, um, the police were not aware really of really of the activities because it was the early stages. But what happened was the Jamaican gangs began to get guns. And obviously, when you're selling drugs and you see the people that brought you in to sell drugs making so much money than you are, it turns you against them. Mm-hmm. So what happened was we began to self-destruct. So instead of fighting the establishment, like we would fight police officers before we got involved. Like literally, if a policeman called me a nigger or a coon, um, there would be 25 of us and we will stamp him out. But, but what happens is when money gets involved, your gang doesn't have the same purpose it has anymore. No, you start, so to, you start purpose, to implode, doesn't it? I mean, you start fighting each other yeah. then. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So we started to shoot each other. And it was during that period between 1984 and about 1996, 97, um, there was this continuing gun battle going on in the black communities and in some of the white communities up in Manchester. Um, And so you had this explosion of gang warfare and were, were you uh, frightened, Sheldon? Sheldon, because I, I know from a young age you were exposed to violence, right? And you were exposed to racism and you were exposed to gang warfare from a young age and, and criminality. But wait, when you see, as you describe, you know, there was uh, a situation, I think, in a nightclub where a man standing next to you got his head blown off. I mean, were you frightened? Even though you were hard and you, and you had to pretend, even if you weren't, I suppose, you had to pretend to be hard. I mean, were you frightened? I mean, I, I would say this. Deep down, I was terrified because most gang members, I'm going to be honest with you, most gang members are scared, even the ones today. They were totally scared. And what it is, is because of our vulnerable state of mind that we're always angry, we don't process that. Remember, as children, we we have no clue about how to process our anger. So what happens is we're driven by anger, but we're also driven by fear. So what happens is, is that we then think, oh, we've got a gun. You know, I'm 15 years old. Yeah, I've got my gun. So I'm the baddest man in Brixton or I'm the baddest man in Tottenham. And we don't, we're, 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 we're so angry that we're lost and delusional at the same time. Mm-hmm. But you don't know these things because you're only a child you're, and you're driven by anger. Because remember, most gang members in the early 80s were driven by anger of racism. So we're so angry at the state that we're now self-destructing and we don't even realize it. My, I, I had nine friends, 
Nine, 25 of us was 25 man deep. That's how big my gang was back in the, the early 80s. Now, I know a lot of people might think that's not a lot of numbers, but in the early 80s, that was big. Big, yeah. And to, to lose nine people over a 10-year period um, to gun battles, we didn't lose them to the National Front. We didn't lose it to the racist police officers. We lost it to people who looked like ourselves. That was when I realized this is wrong. But it isn't, but isn't that this what's happening? When you, when you look at the United States and you look at, you know, some of these, the ghettos in Chicago and well, the Chicago has the highest murder rate. It's black people killing black people. You know, and, and I don't understand it. I find it difficult. I'm, you understand it better than I do. And, and I, I'm sure in places like Chicago where you have the, the biggest gangs, but they're killing each other. Um, and and it all comes from exactly what you start off with, and it stems from this racism, where in, in Chicago, you've got the south side is black, the white side, or the north side is white. Uh, you've got the wealth on the north side with the white people. You've got the poor people, the black people on the, on the south side who don't have jobs, and they're angry all the time. Yeah, and that's what it is like in Britain. You've got to understand, people keep saying, that, but, oh, why did, you, why did you join a gang? Well, it's not as simple as that. If you live in a state where you're being attacked brutally, it turns your head. And so what happens is you then start with something, which is a social response. And then after a while, the social response, when you find your, like, for instance, one of the things that also turned our head was every time we was going to court, we would end up going to jail for the lies of a police officer. I remember distinctly, um, six of us was coming from a nightclub, five in the morning from Hackney, walking down, a meat wagon pulled, well, it didn't pull up. It started to chase us down the road. Some of my friends got caught. They got beaten up in the back of the van. Remember, we've just come from a nightclub. We're not, we're not involved in anything. We're just going home. They got beaten up, driven about 20 miles, dumped out in their underwear. Okay? And then when they went to make a complaint, they got arrested and, and, and got taken to court. So, you know, you've got to understand, people have got to understand why, we're, why we were killing each other. It isn't that we woke up one morning and said, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go and kill that next man out there. It's been designed. We're put into ghetto areas. We're, put, we're, put, we're made to not work. We can't get jobs. The school kicks us out. We can't, we go into school, we're told, you can't be a doctor, you should play football. We're told, you can't what, be... But Sheldon, what do you say to people listening tonight? And, and as much as they empathise with the situation that you were in, and maybe have some level of understanding, because Ireland is probably about 30 years behind Britain when it comes to immigration, but they're listening to you and they're going, oh, Sheldon, stop playing the victim. Don't keep blaming everybody else for what you did wrong. What do you say to those people? Well, I mean, obviously people are going to say that because... Um, you know, it's the, it's the first thing that comes to human beings' minds. But when you haven't lived it, it's easy for you to say a lot of things about why people commit crimes. 90%, if you look at all the psychologists in the world, they have all said the same thing about every criminal, every male criminal you can think of. From Jeffrey Dahmer straight down, they've said, you can trace why these people have become evil to their childhood. When you trace my background to my childhood, you will find brutality from the state that, has, that made me at one time to be a nasty guy, mm -hmm. okay? Now, when I look back on it today, I will say, obviously, it's easy for me to turn around and tell a young person, don't carry a knife, don't do this. But if you, don't, if you live in a neighborhood where there are 20 or 30 gang members, 
you are going to carry a knife to defend yourself. It isn't as simple as somebody like saying, don't carry a knife. But in saying that, I do understand why people say what they've got to say. But what I would say to people, if you've never lived it, you should never speak out in the way you do to say that people and condemn somebody for what they've done. Because nine times out of 10, most of the cases in the black neighborhoods and the poor white neighborhoods, they have been set up to fail from the day they were born. And so when what happens is your inner, your ability, your, your wantingness to succeed in life becomes damaged at a very, very young age. And so you then become susceptible to grooming by older kids, by older people who have ulterior motives. So and as a so kid, so say, when you were, sorry for interrupting, but when you were young as a kid, yeah. you see no hope, you see no outcome for you because you were black. Did you see other black adults at the time that were successful? Was there, was there ever a time where you saw, you know, a successful business owner who was black and said, God, I'd like to be like him. I don't want to be like that kid down the road with the gun. I want to be like him. Was there ever a time when you saw that? Did you ever see any hope? Well, we did. Obviously, we did see we did see hope. You know, um, Bernie Grant, Diane Abbott, they become MPs. They were the first black MPs in the, in the whole country. So we did see hope. There were one or two businesses, but if you look at it from the way a young black kid were looking at it, back in the early 70s, late 70s, early 80s, they were few and far between. It's not like an everyday occurrence. And then what happened was football came along, and we were good at football. Now, I became the captain of the school team, and then, you know, we played for... Back then, you didn't have what you got now, which were academies. You had... Mm. Each football team had what you call Arsenal boys, Chelsea boys, and I was part of the Chelsea boys team. But what we found was football was a way out, okay? But our parents didn't want us to take football because at the time, when you played football, uh, you were going to get racial abuse on the football pitch by your own, um, by yeah. your own fans. So my mum, my dad didn't want us to play because he felt that there was not a lot of black people. And at the time, when I was um, playing for Chelsea Boys, there was only four black players in the whole in the division, which was Sil Regis, Brendan Batson, Laurie Cunningham, and Viv Anderson. Viv Anderson plays for a team called Middlesbrough, um, and mm. Sil Regis they played for West Bromwich Albion. I remember though. No I remember those. Actually, I'm as old as you. I remember those names. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and those there were no other black players, so I can understand the fear in my dad's eye. But I still think that uh, for many of us, because we were far better than the white boys. Far better. We were we were magical. We were we were brilliant. And even though my mum didn't want a football way out because she wanted us to be a doctor or something, mm. but the system wouldn't allow us to become doctors. Did you? I was going to uh, say that. Did you ever see yourself becoming a doctor? Did you think there's not a chance? I'm a black kid. I'm not going to become a doctor. No, it's not going to happen. No, They're not going to let me. No, I didn't think we'd become. It was my mum and dad's dream, not ours. And they were living in cuckoo land because my dad and mum were not living in reality. They were, my mum and dad were cleaners. And, and yes, I do understand you should have a dream for your children. But if you're in, de in denial of racism, how can you dream about something if you're in denial of racism? And my mum and dad were in denial of racism. So if you're in denial, you telling your son he can be a doctor, I'm the one that's facing reality out there. I'm going out there and I'm seeing, well, how am I going to become a doctor if every minute I walk down the road, I'm either being chased by the police or chased by the National Front. What chance do I have? So it was a case of, 
you know, we're locked out of the system. We're locked out of the education. What else could we have done? We had no choice. But today's young black kids are different. We don't, you, you don't have that same racism. You don't have the same situations. It's a, it's a, a lot better than what it was in our days. Mm. But when you listen to these young black kids and you speak to um, white kids who are um, growing up in this generation, they will tell you the same thing. They will say there's a class problem. They will tell you that. They, the blacks will still say there's a problem with color because they still get stopped and searched for no reason. But if you speak to poor white kids in poor white neighborhoods like Salford um, and, and those areas up north, um, Croxteth in Liverpool, Norris Green in Liverpool, you speak to white kids and they will tell you exactly what black kids are saying except for in a class situation. So, so did, you, by the way, did you, got, you ever, did you ever end up in jail, Jonathan? No, I missed it by um, the skin of my teeth. I had two witnesses that came forward. So I beat up a police officer, but basically, I'm not saying that, well, basically, I are, was are you ashamed? By the way, are you ashamed of doing that? Do you, do you look back? Or, do you, well, I, I, don't, I don't know the circumstance of the situation and why you beat up the police officer, but, but, but when you look back at that now, are you ashamed of that? No. No, okay. Because, no, there's no way, because they came on the bus, and basically, they were sitting at the back. Bus conductor asked me to pay the fare. I asked him how much. The police officer then stood up and said, speak English. Because um, back then, most of us spoke with a Jamaican patois. And he said, speak English. I turned around and said, what that mean? And then he turned around and says, you know what that means, you black bastard. And that's what set me off. I then punched him. He punched me. And then, obviously, my, me and my friends, we, they jumped in. And we kicked him down the stairs because back then, in those days, we had the old buses. Remember you them, didn't yeah. have these new buses. Yeah. So there was no door. So when we kicked him down the stairs, he then fell off the bus, but his foot got caught. And so the bus dragged him. Oh, God. Um, ob obviously, we jumped off the bus and started running, and then all hell broke loose. Was he so, was he badly um, was he bad I mean was he badly injured I know that you know yeah well they beat us up in the back of the van they said if he dies you're going to you know mm -hmm. obviously they were upset the police were upset their quarters running through Trafalgar Square um, you know it it was a nightmare I mean I, I I understand your anger and why you attacked him and I understand that okay but still people are going to say you know you left a man who nearly died who could have died you know I mean. Surely, in your own heart, you can look back now at the kind of because you're a different person now, and and I, I'm going to talk to you very briefly about that in a second because you, you talk to other gang members now and try to get them on the straight and narrow. But surely you can look back and think, you know, I should have been the bigger person, you know, and maybe walked away you, from wait, that situation. I know you had a lot of anger. I, I get that. It's not possible at 15. You can't expect a 15 year old to process that. That yeah, doesn't true. make sense. 15, We've got yeah. adults now who can't process that. We've got adults now who are big men who can't even process violent thoughts. We're 15. How are you expecting a 15-year-old to process a thought that this man's called me a black bastard for not for for he saying I don't speak English? What and remember, this is after incidents of my friends being set up, brutalized, beaten up, my brother being beaten up. But remember, all of this is inside of me. So it's not a case of like. Don't get me wrong. I'm not simply saying I we should do acts of violence today. Obviously, I'm a peaceful guy now. I'm a I'm a Christian. 
I believe in, in Jesus Christ. So I'm not a person that's advocating violence anymore. None of that stuff. But back then, no one can't say to me, oh, don't you feel sorry? Because back then, when my brother was nearly kicked to pieces and police officers were laughing and my friends had been set up, I had been beaten up by police officers, Egg had been thrown, that's in your head. So when a man calls you a black bastard, in your head, he's like, you know what? I'm not having this. So that's how that came about. It's not like we started trouble. Any incident that I got arrested for, I've been arrested 38 times, and any incident that I was arrested for was provocation. Provocation. But, so, but, but and I, I, Sheldon, I understand, done. and I'm listening to you, and, and I certainly don't envy your life because you've had a tough life, and I absolutely appreciate that. But there were many black people in Britain at that time who didn't get involved in crime, who didn't get involved in gangs, who made a better life for themselves. Yes, they would have had to fight harder than a white person to get those same opportunities. And I understand how that kind of racism, which was endemic at the time, was so difficult for black families uh, coming to Britain. But many of them didn't get into trouble. So you can't, you, you know, you can't say it happened to everybody or everybody reacted the same no. way. No, I agree with you. In fact, I would say more than a lot of a majority of the black community didn't get involved. But this is where this is where um, people need to understand. They didn't get involved. They tried, and you're right. But here's what here here's the damage. They didn't do well in school because they couldn't because of the racist teachers. They didn't get good jobs. They were cleaners. We were the bottom of the pile, and they had to eat humble pie every day, be insulted by their supervisors who would call them every name. Oi, monkey, come here, in their job. I was not prepared to go into a job and be called a monkey by my supervisor. No. So, yes, when somebody says to me, oh, yeah, but many black people, they will suck. That's because they wanted to eat humble pie and put up with abuse. And I am sorry, but as a young black kid, 16, 17, going 18 in them days, I was not prepared to put up with those insults that many of our generation people did put up with being called a monkey. My brother worked for BT. BT. He was insulted every single day of his life while he was there to the point where he had to be sectioned. Don't tell me about success. There was no success. We had to live and endure what the people in South Africa had to live and endure in the 70s in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and the 90s. And things only began to change when we began to challenge in a forceful way about the, 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 the system, and it still hasn't changed enough. So okay. when, when, when people I, say I, by the way, about, I, I, I'm sure people listen have a complete understanding of what you went through, because we all know about, of course, what happened with apartheid back in the 70s in, in South Africa and how black people were treated. And, and it's horrible to think that people would treat other human beings like that just because of the colour of their skin. Um, in relation, just because I've, I've very little time, because it's been a really interesting conversation, I'd love to have more time to talk to you because it's a really interesting conversation. But you obviously made bad into good because you wanted to help other people, of course, and that's where Gangs Line comes in. It's a mentoring program. Just explain to me a bit, so what you do now. So basically, because of a man called Jesse Jackson, Bernie Grant, when I got shot at and the guy got his head blown off, I got taken to America by Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott 
who are part of a political, yeah, a new political I'm aware approach. of Diana, but yeah, I'm aware of Diana. Yeah. yeah, and so they took us to America, and I stayed with Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson quite is famous. Um, a yeah. former, yeah, it's quite well known. He used to march with Martin Luther King. And one day, um, uh, Jesse Jackson said to me, there's certain things you can do in life. One of them is that you can allow racism to dictate your life, or you, and you can be angry all your life, do what you're doing, get involved in gangs, do all of that stuff, and then end up dead or go to jail. Or you can get yourself re-educated, get with God, and, um, and not allow racism to dictate your, your, your life, but you dictate to racism that you're going to be a different. And I chose the second option, which is I want you to be a different, because I realized that I allowed racism to ruin my life in my early years. And um, Jesse Jackson said, we don't have to let it ruin our life. And who better than Jesse Jackson, Diane Abbott, and Bernie Grant to actually say these words to me because they were living proof that you can be successful and black um, and still do, still believe in what you believe um, without going down the path of criminality. So that's how I became, we became gang signs. So when we ca I came back to England, I started to engage with gang members. In fact, I think to this date, I've engaged more gang members than every police force in the old UK, um, engaged more gang members than any politician, than any school, than anybody in this country. I think about 15,000 individual gang members I've engaged with. So, so what happens is they, they let them out on license into the communities, uh, provided they're, yes. on, they're on this gang's line mentoring program. So essentially you're babysitting them and keeping an eye on them to keep them out of trouble. No, no, no. It's not like that. Basically, no. It's a program that the program we've developed has been based on myself and a lot of the people that work for me, which is the mind. We realize that how it works, how we're so vulnerable is because we've not processed the anger that is inside of us. So I'm teaching young men and women who are ex-prisoners, former gang members or gang members or who are still in gangs, some of them to process the anger, because what I've found, I've realized that this generation and the last generation are suffering the same sort of racism, but not in the same way, and the same sort of classism, but now it's added with dysfunctional parents. So with dysfunctional parents, the probability of a child being successful is limited. So I, I, my program is a psychological um, cognitive program. Okay, okay. Well, I have to say, it's been a really interesting conversation. I love this part of the night because I get to talk to people. I have no idea what their life is like. I have a wonderful idea what your life is like now, but it wasn't a wonderful life. And I can completely understand the anger you had as a young child and how that would, I suppose, demonstrate itself throughout your life. So I, I do have a great understanding. Um, a lot of people have different views of it, of course. And, I, and I'm glad you turned your life around, by the way. And I'm glad you're now putting that to good use and helping other people to get through that difficult time in their life. And hopefully, by the way, the world is changing somewhat, uh, particularly in Great Britain, although we are seeing <clears throat> problems at the moment, obviously, in relation to immigration, both in Great Britain here and here in Ireland. And I think what happens is when you see problems, political problems, in dealing with immigration, it starts to divide people. And that's very unfortunate. Anyway, it's been wonderful talking to you, Sheldon. Thank you very much no, indeed for joining us and thank you for sharing your story. I think it's really important for people to listen to. Thank you very much. Thank you. Real people, real opinions, 
Real Talk Radio, the multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Oh.